Welcome to the Align Nutrition Podcast, a place where eating doesn't get in the way of living. We use science and psychology to move past the challenges you face while healing your relationship to food. I'm your host, Erica Drury, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. For the past 10 years, I've been helping people like you find a happy medium of flow and balance with eating. If solving these issues were easy, you would have figured it out already. Expect to learn a new way. Each week, you'll hear trainings, listen in on mini coaching sessions from people on your same path, and learn from other guest professionals. I'm so glad you've joined me. Hey there, welcome back to the Align Nutrition Podcast. I am introducing our guest today, Nancy Jane Smith. She is a therapist that is a complete expert on all things high-functioning anxiety. She is so real and our conversation is amazing. You're going to find it so relatable, tangible strategies, and just probably feeling generally seen. (laughs) Nancy has a master's degree in higher education and in community counseling from the University of Dayton. She is a licensed professional counselor and coach specializing in high-functioning anxiety. 14 years in private practice and has spent 20 plus years working as a counselor and a coach. She has written three books on living happier, most notably The Happier Approach, Be Kind Yourself, Feel Happier, and Still Accomplish Your Goals. She also completed her postgraduate training in Gestalt Therapy at the Gestalt Institute of Central Ohio and is a certified Daring Way facilitator. That's Brene Brown. She lives in Columbus with her husband, her two cats, and her dog. Welcome to this conversation. I'm so excited for you and it's going to be a good one. Welcome back to the Align Nutrition Podcast. Today with me, I have Nancy and we're going to hop right into it. You've already heard all about her and how amazing her work is. So Nancy, welcome. Ah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Absolutely. How did you get into this work? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I was a licensed professional counselor. And so I did that work in kind of a generalist way for a long time. And then my passion was always career counseling. And I did career counseling for a couple of years. And then I realized I'd have clients come in and they'd be like, they do all the testing and we'd figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. And then they'd go out into the world to go do it. And then a couple of months later, they'd be back to say, hey, let's go do that testing part again, because I really liked that. And I realized that it was their inner critic was what was keeping them from doing the thing that they'd figured out what they wanted to do. And so they were kind of stuck in this analysis paralysis place. Rather, even though they'd figured it out, it was just taking that next step. And so that's when I became really fascinated with inner critic. And I started working more with, I call it the monger, because monger spread propaganda. And so that's my term for the inner critic. And so I really started diving into that work. And there is a strong link between anxiety and a very loud monger. And so then I started going more into anxiety. I deal with anxiety personally. And then I became more, way more fascinated with high functioning anxiety specifically because it's a, it is the kind of anxiety I have, which is that you function in response to anxiety, you over function. And it is driven largely by my monger slash inner critic. And so, I wrote a book on the monger and then I realized that connection with anxiety. And then I started working with anxiety and the monger work really supported that in a really powerful way. Mm. So it's almost like 
the monger is what drives the level of functioning of the anxiety or is it that they're like kind of squared off against each other or they feed into each other? They kind of feed into each other. So anxiety, especially high functioning anxiety is really rooted in shame and shame is the driver of it. And so that shame tends to come from the monger voice telling us what we should be doing and how we should be behaving. And so at a young age, we learned we couldn't we can't trust ourselves. What we can trust is what everyone else is telling us. And so we look outside for what we should be doing. And that gets a little pushed too high, like that the external searching gets a little too out of whack. And so we're looking more externally and we really lose touch with what it is we believe, what we want, what we need. Everything is a should. And so everything in our lives becomes about performance. And anytime we have anxiety, we go to that default of, ah, let me perform more. And so it, it's all one big knot. Wow. You and I know each other well. We just talked offline for an hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it seemed like no time. Actually. Yes. <laughs> and you know who my listeners are. You know my work. You know them well. And that's what I love about what you do and how you uniquely think about this stuff and talk about it in this way. Because I think anyone listening to this and what you just described is nodding. They're saying, that is me. and. Food and body go hand in hand with this inner dialogue and this critic and, you know, the monger kind of driving this performative effort and obviously shame being the source of it. And even like, could you riff off a bit about more of an informal definition of shame? I think people can understand that they felt shame, but even just thinking about what that actually means. So, because shame is such a loaded word, you know, in, in our world. And, and it is the idea of I'm not enough. I'm not strong enough, good enough, smart enough, whatever the word is, the value that most, most people, it's a value they grew up with, you know, maybe that got a lot, you know, I know for me, I got a lot of pressure about how I should look and I should look a certain way. And so I'm not thin enough. I'm not cute enough. I'm not whatever. And so that becomes an internalized message. But, the shame is really about I'm not worthy, period. Mm -hmm. And so I need to keep hustling to make sure I can fill that worthy hole. But it is a bottomless pit. We have this delusion that we can fill it by performing, by getting to whatever that definition of enough is. But the line just keeps getting moved. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people can relate to that of I never quite get there to where I feel like I've hit that enough because it, mm -hmm. it does. And, and I think a lot of people listening to this would say, oh, you know, from the outside, I look like I mm -hmm. have it all together, or I'm seeking thin enough, or I am thin enough, or I'm not thin enough. And I look a certain way and I'm eating the right things and doing the right things, exercise, -wise. like all of these, you know, they're very driven and that kind of achievement piece. And when is it like this kind of healthy striving of I'm trying to, you know, work on a goal or whatever versus for, I think a lot of us wear shame and that practice of a lifetime of trying to, you know, listen to that inner critic to drive them. That's kind of the pattern they've been in. Yeah. And the part that always has, you know, always drove me crazy for years is the idea of the common way to deal with shame. If you're, if you're pushing yourself is to have self-compassion. 
or self-acceptance. And those two words we use to the point where they've lost all meaning. And to me, even now with years of training and books and writing and podcasting about this stuff and working with clients, I still struggle with the idea of self-compassion and self-acceptance because it goes against my idea that if I have self-acceptance, then I'm not going to accomplish anything. I'm not going to, I'm not even going to be striving because I'm just going to be accepting. And so that's why for me, when I found the term and I, you know, my husband will sometimes laugh at me because it's like, he's like, it's just verbiage you're using, but I will use the term self-loyalty because to me, that was like, okay, I can own that. I'm going to be, I can see the imperfection and I can be loyal to myself, even though I have that imperfection. I don't have to accept it. I don't have to be kind, you know, be compassionate and loving about it, but I can be loyal to myself around it. I can at least be like, ah, there's that thing where you ate the, you know, the, you went to Instacart and you bought the donuts and you ate half the thing. I hate that I do that, you know, and instead of hammering myself, I can just be like, yeah, we did that. We did that. Now what, now what's the next right thing we're going to do? Or what's the next thing we're going to do? Because we did that. And it's not going to be, let me hammer myself to death and punish myself. It's just an acknowledgement of, oh, I can still have my back. I don't have to turn my back on myself because I did a behavior that I'm not proud of. Ooh, yes. It feels like alongside loyalty, the word self-respect is coming up to that. Like I have my own back. And I think a lot of people, when you're having this like inner critic piece to go from inner critic, like you said, to this compassionate, loving, it that's too far of a jump. And so mm-hmm. how can you yeah, work with yourself instead and loyalty that feels really fitting in this case? Yeah. What is the purpose of the inner critic? Would you say, is it to manage that performative effort or to combat shame? How does it work within ourselves? I think that I say that the monger has three rules in a form of protection. Don't stand out. Don't be too vulnerable and don't make a mistake. And if you live and abide by those three rules, you'll be safe. And, and she can kind of keep you contained and, and we know we can, we can predict what's going to happen and, and our anxiety will go down. Now, if you are doing anything in your life, you can't not be vulnerable, not make a mistake and not stand out. Like it's impossible to live by those rules. And so she's going to lash out anytime you go too far because she's just like an overprotective mom who's just like, stay here, stay safe, stay small, stay, stay where I can see you, stay right here. Because if you get too far out down the road, we don't know what's going to happen and scary things will. So I'm going to shame you into submission. So it isn't so much that her it's her methodology is the problem. It's not so much the idea of, I want to keep you protected. It's that I want to keep you protected. So I'm going to shame you instead of, I want to keep you protected. Let me be kind and remind you that may be a little too big of a stretch. Let's come back a little bit. What are some ways that that could show up in like a, like I'm thinking of a couple examples of how, how that might be illustrated. Because I think a lot of people would say, oh, I, I shouldn't be mean to myself or, oh, I shouldn't, whatever. And it's like, how, like, do you kind of catch the monger in action or do you just notice when you're feeling bad? Like, how do you kind of get familiar with this process? I think a lot of people are trying to get more aware 
and trying to essentially change a bit how they think about themselves. And then we can talk later how that will ripple out into food in our bodies. But I think a lot of people listening to this really get how these two things go together of how you speak to yourself is also how you might, you know, interface with food, your, your relationship, these things are going to be really, you know, running alongside each other. The hardest part about the monger by far is the idea that I think I need her. Mm-hmm. I think I need her to keep myself in line. I think I need to have that voice or I am just going to run amok. If I don't have someone locking me down, left to my own devices, I will do whatever I want. I will eat whatever I want. I'll be running you know, through the streets like a crazy person. And so that's the hardest thing because that belief is so strong Like, and, and breaking that down is so hard. And so that's, for me, it was the idea of recognizing I have to, I can recognize my behaviors before I notice the thoughts because the thoughts are so familiar. They're, they're comfortable. Even after years of doing this work, I can go down a monger hole and be stuck down there and just be like, yeah, this kind of feels good. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels terrible, but it also feels so familiar and comfortable that it's that it's just like, this is what I deserve. This is where I'm going to be. At least I'm doing something. I call it like when you get into the closet and you find a sweater and you're like, oh, why is this sweater buried in the back of the closet? Let me put it on. And that's what happens when we first put on the monger voice. We're like, yeah, this feels good, familiar. I got this warm, cozy sweater. And then the sweater gets itchy. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's why this sweater was in the back of the closet. It's really itchy. And then it kind of becomes a straitjacket. And at that point, you can't get it off because it's just kind of there and you're really wrapped in it. And so it is that that's the hard part. So I think it's for me, it's recognizing those behaviors. And I start, I, and each of us have our own behaviors, but a lot of it is our anxiety will increase or we'll get irritable, grouchy. I say we have a 10 reaction to a two situation. So my husband does something that's slightly annoying and I'm just like ready to kill him. And it's recognizing those kind of behaviors or the, I got this, I got this. That's another common one of just, let me take on more and more and more and more and more because I'm trying to get to that line of I've done enough where I can rest. And that line is never going to come. So it's really getting curious. The thoughts are going to be harder to manage, but knowing these are the behaviors I engage in. I, I have to know that I go for sugar well before I'm aware that I'm beating myself up. And even if I'm eating the donuts and someone says to me, ah, is your monger loud? I would be like, no, I just want sugar. (laughs) And then it's later that I'm like, oh, no, wait, they were connected. You're right. It just it's not a first thought, you know? Yes. Oh, my gosh. It makes so much sense. And a lot of people describe their relationship with food in similar terms of that, whether it's someone saying, oh, that's what my eating disorder sounds like, or, oh, that's what the food police sounds like. Or when I think about eating, you know, that's kind of the dialogue that I have. But like you said, they wouldn't always identify it that way. But then it's like, ooh, well, why? What were you saying to yourself when you, after you had eaten those foods that you didn't want to eat? Or what were you saying to yourself that morning that you decided not to go to the gym? Or what were you saying to yourself when, you know, you didn't work out as long as you, you know, thought you quote unquote should have? Like the word should and this, you know, dialogue that you described go hand in hand. And also, like you said, that 
awareness of, ooh, this feels so comfortable, then, oh, crap, I feel the sleeves of this sweater starting to come around me and I'm already stuck in it. And it's, yeah. So it's almost like this kind of working backwards process where you're going, okay, so I have this behavior that I'm pretty unhappy about. Or, you know, some people who, who might be, say, restricting their food intake or, you know, kind of meeting the needs of thin enough, you know, by our society or whatever, theirs might be more it's compromised with, with their value system. So it might, it might be like, well, yeah, I, I have this body and, you know, I, I, you know, work at the gym for it, but I turned down my friends to go to the gym or mm-hmm. I don't really have any energy and I know I'm not eating enough or, you know, I'm really unkind to myself. So it's like all these different ways that it shows up, but it's not getting at the core of it, which is the, the inner critic piece that's, that's driving it. Yeah. And it's, and the other part I would put in here is that for me, it became less about the thoughts because that you can, I mean, I can get lost in those thoughts. You know, it can just go on and on and on and on and on. And I spent a lot of time in the world of control your thoughts, control your your body. And, and now I believe that is a myth because what I realized is I was feeling all this stuff that I was completely unaware of because I was analyzing it away. It's not appropriate for you to feel that way. You shouldn't be feeling that way. Stop feeling that way. And so I wouldn't ever allow what was happening to come out because I shut it down so quickly. Either my monger shut it down or I shut it down apart from her. And so the question now that I ask myself when I'm in, like when I eat the box of donuts or half the box or whatever, or when I notice that I'm obsessing about how I look or food or anything is what are you feeling? What are you feeling right now? And I have to literally pull out a feeling sheet. And I've been doing this work, you know, for over 20 years. I have to pull out a feeling sheet to look and identify the feelings. I can't just say, oh, I'm feeling unworthy or I'm feeling this. I have to literally look and be like, oh, wow, look at that. That that does pop up for me. I am feeling sad. And if someone asked me, are you feeling sad? I'd say no. But when I pull out the feeling sheet and I literally, I tell people name eight to 10 feelings because then you'll get to what you're actually feeling because we're so good at marking those off. So it's not just the first two, you got to dig a little deeper. And then I can, that starts building self-loyalty because then I can say, oh, I'm feeling sad. Oh, and not why are you feeling sad? Is it appropriate to feel sad? We shouldn't be sad, not immediately judging it, but just being able to acknowledge there's a feeling here. And I thought for so long, I needed to dive into it and explore it and look at it. and No, you just need to acknowledge that you are a human being who has all this stuff going on that's way beyond weight and food and shoulds and achievement, et cetera, et cetera. Oh my gosh. It's so powerful because it's like you just cut straight to it. It's like, okay, we hear all this other stuff and it's just the cycling thoughts, cycling thoughts. And we just go straight in with the feeling. And and this idea that that's you know, on some level, that's really going to just cut to the heart of it. And, and okay, there's nothing. And I think for people who have been focusing on achievement or thinking the right thing, and now I need to feel this way about food, or now I need to feel this way about their body. There's this messy middle where this kind of skill and building self-loyalty is as simple as you describe, you know, and it's not simple. Mm-hmm. That's the wrong word, but like the day-to-day practice of identifying this feeling and then not having to, like you said, justify it or explain it away, but just, I felt this way. 
I felt sad. And, you know, I ate some donuts yesterday and I'm carrying on. Right. Because, you know, yesterday I was talking with a client and she's feeling really overwhelmed at work. And she's telling herself she shouldn't feel overwhelmed at work. Like, and then it's a bad thing, whatever, whatever. She should be able to handle it. Like as if, you know, another thing that people with high functioning anxiety do is we think we can bust the time space continuum (laughs) and make, you know, do more things than it's physically possible. And she was talking to a friend of hers and she started crying and she got in touch with me because she was beating herself up for the fact that she was crying with this friend. See, don't be too vulnerable. That's one of those mistakes. And I said to her, I said, but you did cry it happened. It's over. You cried and you cried because you were frustrated and overwhelmed. You didn't cry because you're weak and pathetic. You cried because you're a human being who had an emotion and you let it out. And that's it. That's all that happened. And that sounds like, oh, that's all that happened. But, But that's the start is just to be able to be like, oh yeah, let's acknowledge that this happened and let's acknowledge that I'm uncomfortable with it, but I don't have to spin off on why did I do that? And I'm such a loser and I should be better. And da, 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 that just wastes all this mental energy instead of being like, I am frustrated. Let's own the, what's happening. And then I can be like, oh, sweet pea. God, that just sucks that you're so frustrated. And that's it. You know, and I'm, and I don't, I really don't want to be trivializing and making this trite because it is not. This is hard and uncomfortable and counter to everything we've been programmed and counter to society for sure. But I do want to say for me, it was kind of like a switch flipped when I realized, oh, I can acknowledge my humanness and that I don't have to live up to these weird standards that I have set that are wacko in how stringent they are. And I do this, what I just said, this switch gets flipped every freaking day. I have this aha of, oh yeah, you're human, honey. You're human. It's not as if I've healed and I've figured this all out and I never do it. It's every day that I'm saying this to myself. You You have. (laughs) (laughs) You have angel wings. You guys can't see this, but he is superhuman. (laughs) And as you're talking about this, it's becoming so clear to me of okay, the inner the inner critic its rule was broken. There was the vulnerability. There was the standard that wasn't lived up to that was broken. And so predictably, we know the protective inner critic is trying to come in and run the show and get you back in line because you learned that's what helps you survive. You learned that that's what helps you accomplish. And so this humanness, this acknowledgement of the feelings really is just sort of sidestepping it and letting the inner critic kind of do its thing and say its thing. But you're connecting with you and focusing on the human part of you, which is the antithesis of the inner critic. It wants you to be and do all the things because you've been looking outside yourself trying to set up these expectations. And so I think a lot of people who are working on healing their relationship to food have this really strong inner critic that's just sitting there chastising them. And so this idea of, gosh, you know, I think especially people who identify with the term, oh, I'm emotionally eating or, oh, I stress eat or whatever. There's this kind of offshoot of feelings that aren't being acknowledged. And so this idea that, hey, you can just go be with yourself as a human is the example of your client. It sounds easy, but it wasn't. It's just because she was so used to dialoguing with the inner critic. And then you were like, wait, what was the feeling there? 
And that's where, where some of that power came from. Because I used to spend a lot of time with clients about let's dive in and get to know your, your inner critic. Let's, let's draw pictures. Let's name her. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And then I realized it's not a, what you just said it so perfectly. It's just recognizing, oh, wait, my monger, my inner critic is talking. Now I need to bring in, and I call that voice the biggest fan or the voice of self-loyalty. I recognize the monger. That's all I need to do. I don't need to do anything more with her. I just need to now move on to bringing in the biggest fan. And to me, the biggest fan is the voice of kindness and wisdom. So she's going to say, oh, yeah, you do feel sick because you ate the box of donuts. And we don't want to feel sick. We're not going to beat ourselves up for that. We're just going to be like, this is what's really going on, that we're making ourselves physically, I'm making myself physically sick because I don't want to deal with the emotion that I'm dealing with because my mongers telling me that's not appropriate. And so it's about bringing in that other voice who isn't just going to say, ah, you ate a box of donuts. That's okay. We'll get them next time. No big deal. She's going to say, hey, that's not good for us. That causes us pain, not because it adds pounds, but because it makes my stomach hurt. And so I need to be dealing with that fallout in an honest, genuine, loyal way. So it's less about once you recognize the monger's talking, it's then moving beyond her, sidestepping her, as you said, to the next thing. Absolutely. That's where healing your relationship to food runs alongside of this so well, because it's really about getting attuned to yourself. It's not saying, hey, don't eat the donuts. Or like you said, it's not about like worrying about weight or these consequences. It's just about being present with yourself and kind of giving your own take on, you know, then now what? You know, and in the future, you might say, gosh, you know, when I eat donuts, I'm going to have to be with myself during that so that I don't feel this way again. Or, hey, you know what? Everybody misses the mark sometimes and this doesn't feel good right now. And I'm going to carry this lesson forward, but it's not going to be accompanied by my inner critic. It's going to be accompanied by my self loyalty, my biggest fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. It just, this is so cool to think about it this way. And, and like I said, I, I love, in your work, how you just bring these pieces together that I, I think goes along with healing your relationship to food because there's, you know, until you trust yourself with food again, it's a long road of practicing self-loyalty over and over again and getting to know what your biggest fan even sounds like. Yes. Because I don't know about you and your clients, but a lot of people that I see are stuck on being afraid of losing their edge. How will I accomplish anything? How will I be me? Everything I've always done is through the lens of this inner critic, pushing me, forcing me along to be better. And then how do I, how do, I do that in a way that's not, you know, kind of cracking a whip or, or being so harsh? Yeah. Cause it's recognizing, oh, wait, I, I'm not as broken as I thought I was, you know, like I don't really need to be whipped here. I have things, you know, I want to, to feel good in my body. I want to accomplish this next thing. I want to be striving, but I don't want to be crawling into bed every night feeling like crap, you know, I, but I want to have these goals that I'm going after. And it is, it totally is this, I know I'll talk about it with my clients. There's this level of trust when they first start working with me that, you just have to trust me that we'll get to the other side. Like the, the bridge will be built, but that's hard to have that trust. Like you said, like when you've, when you've really relied on that monger, 
But I get more done now towards my goals than I ever did when I was totally driven by the monger. She still gets in there. Don't get me wrong. Like she's still around, (laughs) but she doesn't run the show. She doesn't run them up. You know, she's not controlling things without me really noticing it after a while. And she used to run everything and I was completely unaware. And so, and now I'm so much more, I, my goals fit. I accomplish things. Like if you would have told me in my twenties, oh, you'll accomplish stuff without a monger. I'd be like, no way. There's no way. <laughs> that, that's impossible. And so that's why it was really a friend of mine who came up to me after I presented on the monger and said to me, love this. This was great. I'm not implementing any of it because if I do, I will sit around and eat bonbons all day and I won't get anything done. And I left that meeting being like, yeah, me too. You know, and here I was a therapist who'd been doing it for a decade and teaching about the monger, but I was just regurgitating what everyone else had taught me and it didn't work for me. And that's why I was like, I got to figure out a different way that's way more realistic because this self-compassion, self-acceptance, just love yourself. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's times when you, I think once you work on the self loyalty and you build some of that trust, that respect, that humanness, then I think over time, there can be these moments where you're like, wow, I just really love myself. There's a shared humanity, you know, with everyone else in the world. There's this compassion for yourself. But I think, and this is why I I really love your work, because for a lot of us that are, you know, dealing with high functioning anxiety, we have, you know, maybe eating disorders or we're working on our relationship to food, we have a lot of this kind of achievement oriented way of of living and being. We need that bridge. We really need it. And and thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You're welcome. I love talking about this. So it's a joy to spread the word. Well, and speaking of that, like what is next for you? Where can people find you and find out more about your work? So they can find me at my website, livehappier.com. I'm actually, I work individually with clients via an app called Voxer. I call it Coach in Your Pocket. And so you can go there and learn more about that. But I'm also working on a course that was coming out hopefully end of the summer where I'm going to be teaching a lot of these concepts and giving people an easily accessible way to start getting to know this. And then I also have a book called The Happier Approach, where I dive into all of this stuff about the inner critic and the biggest fan and and all that good stuff. And then lastly, is my podcast, which is also called The Happier Approach. And that is just an easily accessible way to get to know all these characters as well. Wonderful. We'll link all of that in the show notes. As we sign off, I always like to ask people a bit about food and a specific question around that. And so we've been talking about like the inner critic, self-loyalty, and kind of being your own biggest fan. And when you are in a good space, taking care of yourself and food is a lot, what is a a food that you might regularly have when you're taking good care of yourself? So 10 years ago, I never would have said this, (laughs) (laughs) but my favorite, like when I'm really in a good, you know, like it's spinach, spinach. And then I add in a little bacon, you know, with an egg and do like a good spinach salad. That is really my go-to comfort, feeling good about myself, feeling good, self-loyal self thing. And I have spinach was the first food that I took down from being healthy and labeled and just was like, this is a food I like. Yes. Yep. It's that like not labeled. There's no, it is just reflecting on how that food has felt for you. Like it could be 
you know, having a donut on the side. It's like either or love that. And like kind of bringing it together in a way that's really satisfying for you and discovering ways that you enjoy that food. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that what's funny is I've lost sight of that recently. And then we went out to lunch the other day and I had a spinach salad and I was like, oh yeah, it reminded (laughs) me of what good food tastes like. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Absolutely. And until next time. Thanks to you for listening. Find me on Instagram at Align Nutrition. Let me know if you like this or if you have other topics or ideas for the podcast. I love hearing from you. If you've gotten something out of this, help us reach more people who need this message by subscribing in your podcast app. A nice rating and review also helps us reach more people and is so appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time.